You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 21 of Arsenal Pass. I'm Brendan Patrick, joined always by calling champion Hayden Dale. Hayden, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Brendan. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Very, very excited for the uh, the upcoming events. But anyway, today we're going to be focusing on something very important for the coming set and the release of Tales of Aria. We're just going to be making a transition from Class Constructed to Limited. The Limited format is a huge focus of design of Flesh and Blood and one of the most um, interesting and fun ways to play the game, in our opinion. With that said, there are some intricate game concepts that you'll need to know in order to get an edge of your opponents and achieve success. But anyway, before that, Hayden, how's your week in Flesh and Blood? It's been a good week. Uh, you know, a bit of bit of testing. Um, a few of you know, a few of the the guys, yourself included, have obviously Vegas coming up next week. Uh, it's the last week of Road to Nationals. Um, I'm getting to play two online Road to Nationals, which is it's gonna be fun if if nothing else, which is really cool. Um, you know, I think basically all the prizes are, are random prizing, like you'd see on online skirmishes. But it's just a good a good opportunity to to play some you know play a Road to Nationals event, no matter what the what it sort of looks like. I think the fact we get to get to do it um is is nice on the last weekend of of the road to national season looking forward to seeing what sort of comes out of the last weekend of road to national as well and then yeah other than that um didn't actually play any armories this week just sort of had a bit of a a week off from events before the the weekend and um yeah i mean we we played a played a game of sealed which is pretty cool and kind of made about it what about yourself yeah, I mean, it was a pretty good week. Obviously, I participated in the said testing and very excited for Vegas coming up. Almost, honestly, I'm most excited for the world premiere. Maybe that's because of spoiler season. Maybe that's because I'm a big fan of Limited. Um, but I'm super hyped <laughs> to walk into the world premiere of Aria. That is, it has definitely got my juices going. I'm very jealous. In terms of, <laughs> yeah, in terms of events, I did play two Road to Nationals. Uh, this past weekend, so on Saturday, I played at Reaper Games, which was 50 players, um, and I won that one, so I was able to take home my fourth Road to Nationals win. Um, and then the, the following day, I went to Nerdhalla, and I lost, which is actually really interesting. There's definitely something to talk about there. It felt pretty, obviously it's disappointing to lose, but it felt refreshing in the sense that I know that the real event that's on the horizon is um, is Vegas, and it was important to kind of feel the emotions of losing and understand. Like I don't know, I felt like honestly I was getting really uh, I was getting really nervous because I was running like so hot, and I felt like there was a lot of pressure to keep doing that, <laughs> and it made me really uncomfortable. And uh, so, like, like kind of the way to describe that the most is on Sunday morning. Like I woke up, I didn't feel very good, and I was like, I was actually debating on not going. <laughs> And like I was seriously planning, you know, to to potentially skip it, and I was like, that kind of triggered in my mind that that event on Sunday was probably the most important one for me to go to because like I had this mental block that was like, okay, we've won, we can end on a win, like it's all you know very comfortable, um, and you don't want to go, you're not feeling so well, and like that's the most important time for me to go, be uncomfortable, you know, maybe take that loss and then kind of learn from that and grow like as a player, but uh, yeah, so unfortunately I did lose my first event on chain. Um, but I am happy with my season's kind of results with four road to nationals wins. And, you know, I feel very comfortable going into uh, Vegas here pretty soon. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good, um, good attitude as well. I think it's that sort of thing you just talked about, like on the Sunday when you woke up, that's such like a, 
it's like a tough thing to think about i think in the in the time probably like looking back it's easier to think about like the event itself but um yeah i mean four road to nationals wins is it's a, it's a great result and super happy for you and vegas next week you know if you run into that um with that kind of momentum it's a it's a pretty good way to head into it i think there's going to be you know a lot of people coming into the event with um, some road to nationals wins under their belt and it'd be good to see some of the the players that have experienced you know good success during this road to national season battle off against each other i'm sure we'll see a pretty a uh, pretty interesting field on day two especially as well as um as we progress yeah absolutely um i'm super excited i feel very prepared um and obviously you know i'm confident in the deck that we've been working on so i feel relatively low stress right now but who knows as we get closer uh it's just weird it's in the in the past callings i haven't been nervous kind of leading into them um definitely you know obviously when the event starts and the beginning of the, event, the first few rounds are always uh pretty rough on the nerves but i tend to get in the groove so we'll see i think that this one will kind of go the same way for me i think it's kind of it's funny though because we are focusing on this you know this sort of like mental game which may sound a bit silly but um i know i've kind of expressed this to you a few times saying that i think like for me like mental game is like over 50 percent of it <laughs> i think for like most people it'd be around like 30 percent but like for me it's just a huge huge part to like be confident be calm um and just kind of like trust in the practice and the process mm-hmm. yep get, get out of your own head so to speak <laughs> yeah well anyway hayden let's jump out of the philosophy and why don't you take us into the news <laughs> i can certainly do that uh yeah i mean spoiler season is well and truly underway previous season it's been a jam-packed first day we're recording this on thursday uh, my time wednesday your time brennan so uh, we've had you know what uh, basically 14 15 hours of of preview cards so far we've seen some things like the new ranger headpiece we've seen uh some really cool lightning cards and arrows um so yeah it's been it's been an awesome start we're going to talk about some of those a bit further down but um ours again just want to reiterate our spoiler is dropping on friday uh at 4 p.m new zealand time which is 2 p.m australian which is on thursday at I believe that makes it to midnight Eastern. I think it's about 11 p.m. for CST, Brennan, if that sounds right. I mean, I, I don't know how to... <laughs> I have this written down, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure let's just right. go with, like, yeah, it probably lands in that realm. Um, so, yeah, we've got a... We've got a we've, I, I mean, our spoiler is actually so sweet. I'm, I'm really excited to, to show everyone what we've got. Um, so we'll be dropping that on, on the Arsenal Pass YouTube channel. You can check that out. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty spicy card. I'm pretty excited, Brennan. Yeah, I think that um, I may be slightly overstepping my bounds in the sense of like this, will, but this is like five hours before the card comes out. But like cards like this that you'll see in our spoiler definitely make me think that uh, Chain, or at least the iteration of Chain that we are currently playing, um, probably won't be here to stay in Tales. I think it's fine to say that. <laughs> yeah Um, i know that like i feel like that's what kind of gets people excited like whoa you know like what's gonna hose like kind of the boogeyman of the format and is that gonna be a thing in tales are we gonna have to wait for living legend or you know is there like a you know there's always could be it's like a black horse deck that just hasn't been discovered but um looking at the new cards and specifically looking at our card um the current iteration of the deck would doesn't look like it would work (laughs) like mm -hmm. at all cool 
Yep, and we'll, again, we're going to talk about some spoilers a little bit later before we get into the main topic of the pod, but did want to also share um, from you know our side on, on Arsenal Pass and with the podcast and the YouTube channel, we do have a bit of a update to just our release times for videos during the week, so if you are on the lookout for those, uh, I just want to call out that our, our pod still comes out at the same time, which is uh, Thursday evening in the US, which is Friday morning uh, on my side of the world. That's um, time in the round as well. That comes out on Saturday mornings over in the US around lunchtime for, for our Eastern Seaboard listeners. It's Sunday, sort of early morning over my way. And then our gameplay videos, which have shifted to midweek. So those now come out at uh, when, uh, Tuesday morning or Tuesday midday in the US, North America time. And that's uh, that's Wednesday, sort of early morning, very early morning over my way. But yeah, a bit of a, bit of a shift there uh, just to allow us to get out the, the content in a more timely manner, um, which we're excited about as well. And just gives us a set schedule for our, our gameplay videos, which is... Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, moving on as well, Vegas. So we talked about it earlier, but Vegas is next weekend. There is a stream. I will be watching the stream as that's going on. Come and join me in the uh, in the chat, the live chat. I believe it's going to be either you know YouTube or Twitch stream. Um, I think there's a there'll be a link going up obviously this week. I'm sure that'll be shared around the Fab Fan page on Facebook, around the Discord. Uh, we'll definitely pop it up on our socials as well if you're looking for it. And uh, yeah, come come and join in. Uh, I think it's if you're not at the event, obviously, if you're at the event, well, good luck to you and, and have a, a fantastic Vegas. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to watch some Flesh and Blood. I mean, it's been a long time. I think the last Flesh and Blood event we had streamed would have been uh, the calling in Auckland, which I was obviously at. And before that, uh, the the let's calling so you know not we haven't had a lot to to watch this year so i'm excited for like a big production obviously channel 5 will doing this one um so you can expect a, a reasonable you know level of quality and and um i think it's me yeah i think it's gonna be awesome first uh class constructed stream of flesh and blood um yes. officially i believe yeah so yeah that is exciting yeah uh, i wonder i'm interested to see as you know kind of boots on the ground how it will run in terms of speed i think you know with having the cfb backing going to be quite nice uh, obviously we've moved to two-day callings which i think uh you know the welcome to Wraith boomers like me and hayden will say that you guys you guys have it too good so gone are the days of the one day callings the 12 to 14 hour events so now we have the you know the two days which is nice but uh yeah i expect it to be run pretty well class constructed is an interesting format to kind of stream and play at an event because they can go you know a bit long sometimes um but that being said like we're in no better hands than CFB here, and I think it's going to be an awesome event, and I'm super excited. But anyway, I do want to shout out the <clears throat> the YouTube channel. We had a Katsu versus Chain video go up. I think that you'll be surprised at the result. You see some pretty incredible, um, some incredible turns during that game. Um, real interesting one to watch, and there's quite a quite a puzzle that goes on. Um, we discuss it in detail on the video. So, also, if you're interested in Agrokatsu, we just had the Agrokatsu deck guide go up on YouTube, and then also, to supplement that, we had the, you know, the full written-out sideboard guide, deck philosophy, ratios, numbers, strategy, everything regarding the Agrokatsu deck go up on the Patreon. So, if Agrokatsu is something you're interested in, or you just want to learn more about the meta and dig in deep to this, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, this really competitive class, I recommend you check it out um, on our Patreon. And segueing from that, do just want to say thank you to all the amazing people that have joined up on the Patreon so far. It's been really incredible um, to receive all the support, and it's helped us immensely. I know Hayden's schedule uh, specifically has well you know, has drastically kind of reduced and become a lot more reasonable since we were able to bring on an editor. That was something we've wanted to do since the very beginning, 
and we are so 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 thankful that we have finally been able to do that um one thing to note is that we do have the actually we have the patreon exclusive session coming up on this saturday um that's for the higher tier on the patreon but we are going to be doing an interactive session on sideboarding in flesh and blood so that what that looks like is me and hayden will be doing a sort of pseudo podcast um initially on sideboarding and then we'll you know have a couple hours set apart after that to field questions and kind of interact with the um the people that we're participating so really excited for that yeah me too yeah really looking forward to it sideboarding is a topic that to be honest, I think is really interesting and I love discussing. So, yeah, and again, like Brenda said, thank you to, to everyone. And, yeah. Awesome. So no Commander Cookout, unfortunately, this week, but we've got something better on the menu. It's going to be spoilers, Hayden. So, Hayden, why don't you just take me into what for you so far? Um, we are recording this on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, what spoiler has grabbed your attention the most? Yeah, so, I mean, I just woke up... Um, not long ago to be honest and i saw we had lsv's spoiler drop which was the uh lexi specialization and also the head equipment the new ranger equipment which i was surprised uh was a headpiece i think we should start with that because i think that might be the one that's um mm-hmm. that's probably surprised me the most i mean i guess the speculation was like you know we're gonna probably get a quiver you know it kind of seemed like it might make the most sense for in terms of a um an equipment that was going to allow us to have two arsenal slots maybe retroactively for something like lexi so instead we get new horizon which is a ranger equipment head uh, which says while you have a face-up card in your arsenal you have an additional arsenal zone and when new horizon is destroyed destroy all cards in your arsenal and it defends for two and has blade break so um you know like a pretty powerful card like a very powerful card you know um as, as i like to say anything with blade break tends to be a powerful effect and and uh, new horizon is definitely no exception to that one yeah Important to note that this is uh, Ranger equipment, so it's not specific to Elemental Ranger, which is, that was really the debate, right? It was like, okay, if we're going to get, like, we might get a, a Quiver-esque, like, tunic or something that you can use with Skullbone Crosswrap, um, but it's going to be Elemental only, or we're going to get some sort of Ranger agnostic piece that uh, can be used in both Azalea and Lexi um, and provide the, both ar- the two Arsenal slots. Uh, I think I was more leaning towards, you know, just the generic Ranger kind of in in azalea getting upgraded to being able to have the two arsenal slots so that did end up coming true which is really interesting because that that changes a lot of things right so if we look at azalea i think that that's probably the only universally accepted underpowered class in flesh and blood um and kind of has been since its release so this is a this is a huge curveball into you know what that deck has been able to do in the past and what it will be able to do in the future and that's really interesting um because I think right now, I would rate every class pretty close to each other, and I actually do think that every class is competitive. But Azalea is slightly below, and you know, two Arsenal slots. I was we were thinking about two Arsenal slots before the spoilers came out. Like, wow, two Arsenals is really good. But then Azalea has amazing access to these like, Azalea specializations, like Red in the Ledger and Knock the Death with Death Whistle. These cl- these cards are absolutely nuts. So I'm really excited to see where Azalea goes with this, and obviously. Um, Lexi looks incredible as well, like very much on demand to go again, you know, double arsenals, all this fusing, um, and looks like there's a bit of a tax deck there as well, creating the frostbite tokens. Um, Hayden, why don't you tell me more about frostbite tokens? Cause I know you're about as excited as I am about them. Yeah. So, um, frostbite was probably the other card that I was thinking has been the one that's, well, maybe it's a token, but it's the other one that's been, is sort of caught my eye and it's something that we actually sort of 
we speculated on ourselves privately because we, you know, we didn't want to be wrong. <laughs> but uh, it's pretty close to basically exactly what what I thought it might have been, um, which is so a frostbite token says cards and activated abilities you control cost an additional one. At the beginning of your end phase or when you play a card or activate an ability, destroy Frostbite. And so we know that, uh, you know, from the cards we've seen so far from the Lexi side that Frostbite is a token that can be created under your opponent's control. So um, it is a it is a, an effect that impacts the way your opponent plays, almost like a, you know, a hate, hate ability, basically, you know, something that's going to that hurt them. Um, I think this is quite exciting to me in terms of we're sitting in a format right now and i think brendan we were just actually talked about this before we're sitting in a format right now that's you know pretty aggressive um there's a lot of decks trying to cut down on resources trying to be as efficient as possible with their attacks um go you know go wide and this is you know an ability that can stack up and create multiple and you know you could be trying to activate your first ability for the turn or or trying to play your first attack for the turn and have it cost three or four extra. So, um, yeah, even one extra in a lot of decks is going to be super punishing in the current sort of way that decks are being played. Yeah, absolutely brutal. brutal. Um, it's funny because Death and Taxes is actually my favorite deck or archetype name ever. Because I just oh. think it's... Uh, it's <laughs> No, not in, I don't like playing the deck, but I think uh, okay. the name is just so iconic for like what it what it's a callback to in history. I, I just love that deck name, and I, I just hope that, you know, Flesh and Blood will be, be able to call a deck Death and Taxes with these Frostbite tokens, because it, it is a tax, right? Like, it is a form of um, of a tax here. Yeah. So I'm really excited, and like you said, I do think it is it's probably going to have, I think it's going to have a massive impact on the format. Like Hayden said, like, most decks are redline decks at this point, um, with a bit of an exception. Uh, so this is just kind of hoses that initially if you're like a red line deck that just wants to play five card hands and not block i mean you you just can't really can't do that into this sort of um into you know these frostbite tokens and who knows what the the other frost hero will be able to do mm-hmm. or maybe there are some people that know are there hayden anyway <laughs> the the tokens are definitely going to make us either reevaluate how we play other heroes like chain um or there's going to, I don't even know. The strategy is going to be real weird. But right now, uh, if you hit Chain with a Frostbite token or two, his chain, like his his turn would be wrecked. Like, it'd be so bad. Yeah, I mean, it's important to know that you have to, you know, you have to hit these attacks. You have to, you know, connect with um, them. But in saying that, I mean, uh, Lexi has an ability that says uh, that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to connect with that attack in terms of um, from the, you know, we've got with her bows as well. Um, those are really interesting, which just allow, from what we've seen so far, to potentially present multiple uh, frostbite threats or frostbite tokens in a turn, which is um, it's pretty important when a lot of these decks as well that are these more aggressive redline decks in this current format uh, are playing, you know, cards that defend for two. Like that's, that's you know, really difficult to, to defend out cards that are coming in for five with on-hit effects when you're... Um, playing cards that defend for two multiple turns in a row. So that's probably the one that's that's super interesting to me. I think I think I look at this and this is what I really hoped was going to happen with Flesh and Blood. And I think we're starting to see it with the the preview so far. It's starting to sort of set me at ease and think about what I thought about this game in terms of the Monarch format. That we really we had a massive shift from the the base sets of Welcome to Wraith and Arcane Rising and then Crucible as a supplementary set, which were, you know, very you know, rudimentary in the way that it delivered the game to us. And then Monarch came along with these this this bump in power and I guess the full reveal of Flesh and Blood as a game. And then that set us up into a format that was, you know, very aggressive, very proactive. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, already cards from the next set that look to, uh, I guess, sit, you know, um, counter to that in some way, um, which is, is really nice. Is what I really wanted to see, that, the, that we would get the next set and the game to iterate and the format to change and, 
and then have to um, move on, which is, yeah, I, I'm just glad that we're seeing. That. I mean, it's not it's not 100 certain that that will happen yet, but I think from what we're seeing so far in these cards, I feel I feel pretty confident that we're going to see a pretty big shift in the in the meta going forward. Yeah, Frostbite is infinitely more impactful than um, Snag, in my opinion. <laughs> a card that, you know, look to maybe warp some of the format or some of the strategies, but Frostbite is definitely the strongest ability um, against the current decks that are running rampant, in my opinion. So I'm excited. I want to go back to a more mid-rangey control or just a, a longer format where you will see the second cycle of the deck and... You know, other concepts in the game can be employed, some of which yeah. we are missing currently. So yeah. that is what I'm most excited for. Slow the game down, um, get a bit more grindy. That's what I like. But obviously, aggro decks will still be there, and you have to be playing the tax deck to punish them, you know, punish these decks anyway. So we will see, but I am very excited. Anyway, Hayden, um, why don't you take us into the main topic of the pod, which is making the leap over to limited. Yeah, last thing I just wanted to say on um, while we close out the pseudo command and cookout section is that we will be back with uh, the command and cookout section in the future. We want to take this time as we go through spoiler season to reflect on some of the spoilers, especially the ones or preview cards, especially the ones that sort of stand out to us, the ones that we think um, might impact the meta, might change uh, how this game goes going forward, whether that's from a constructive standpoint or even you know uh, from a limited standpoint as we start to introduce the limited format uh, back into our content again after focusing for so long on constructed um you know we we do like to definitely stay on top of and follow the formats as we go into competitive season so we would would still focus on that um but still please send your questions into us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com um, if you have any other questions drop them in the comment section on youtube as well we, we'll try and answer those but we're uh, we will come be back with the commander cookout section for sure um but yeah Brendan, we're going to be talking about limited as a format and making the leap over to limited so you know a lot of the focus for the past basically since since Monarch came out uh, has been on constructed for a lot of the world that was blitz initially uh you know for the southern hemisphere and my neck of the woods we had a little bit of a focus on limited for the first sort of six weeks uh, maybe even eight weeks and then that really shifted into class constructed with the announcement of the road to national season and nationals and that's kind of where the focus and the, the i guess the spotlight's been for flesh and blood for that the past basically now three months has been class constructed after blitz and, and we did a pod uh at this before the road to national season which was you know making that transition from blitz to class constructed and now we're here today to talk about i guess <laughs> making the leap from from the classic or the constructor side to limited uh because it is a it is a very different format it's a very different way to play the game um i think the surface level initial impression for a lot of people of limited is that it's a fun format uh that probably has more variance uh you know it depends what you open in your sealed pool um, but you know what? It's not. That's not the case. Uh, it's a very skill-intensive game, and, and Flesh and Blood and Legend Story Studios have crafted the, this game with limited firmly in mind. It's one of the things they test a lot when they design this game, uh, and it's one of the reasons that they chose a lot of the mechanical systems and the way that the game uh, sort of functions is actually based around limited. So, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot to love about limited, and where are we going to start in terms of talking about it, Brendan? All right, so we're going to we're going to start with three different kind of larger concept groups here. So we're going to start with macro concepts, sealed concepts, and then end with draft concepts. So first thing in the macro concepts is a um, an important thing in Flesh and Blood that I think both Hayden and I sound like a bit of broken records when we talk about, which is second cycles of the deck. So limited is a format where um, especially in sealed, you'll almost always see the kind of the second cycle of your deck. So you either be rewarded or you'll be punished for the cards that you are pitching and what order you are pitching them in. Um, like Hayden said, limited at the at the very base level can be perceived as a high variance format. Um, but I actually think in Flesh and Blood is probably 
the format you can outplay your opponents the most um, because it is so technical and um, so intricate in terms of like how you're stacking your deck, how you're playing turn cycles, and how you're managing your life total. Um, so yeah, to jump into second cycles of the deck, Hayden, I know you are you were kind of one of the pioneers. Give me some you know kind of little heuristics on pitching, what I need to be looking for, and what it means to play the second cycle of my deck and play it successfully. Yeah, I don't know about pioneers, but I think. There was probably a group of early adopting players that sort of, once they realized just how important, you know, setting up your deck and cycling through was, uh, got a, quite a bit of an edge in the early limited formats. And, you know, what we we talk, we do talk a bit about second cycles of the deck, but we've talked about it a lot less recently uh, because it hasn't been super relevant in the current constructive format. Uh, it hasn't been that relevant in the blitz format for, you know, most, most decks, most players. But in the limited format, it is you know, it is significantly important. It is almost always going to happen uh, unless there's a, you know, maybe some weird game where um, players have quite aggressive decks or players are playing, you know, super aggressively. Uh, that's just maybe their natural play style, but that's often not even the, the correct way to be sort of going about the game. So 30 card decks, uh, you know, you think about it, seven, um, <clears throat> excuse me, seven turns or so and you're, uh, you're back through the deck. So yeah, second cycle decks, super important. I guess the the most important thing about the the second cycle and what you're trying to do is you're effectively trying to um, set up a a second phase of the game with your second cycle, which is okay. Whatever cards I pitch, I know I'm going to get back, and you can actually easily work out um, which cards you're going to draw together in groups. So, if you have a um, 32 card deck, for instance, this would be easy because that would be eight turns through the deck, and then you draw back to your first pitch card. Um, with 30, you know, which you're probably gonna play the minimum, your, your first two cards you, you pitch would be uh, in a group, a separate group, for instance, but there might also be some card draw effects, there might be some, some you know, like opt cards, like um, you had an Arcane Rising with like Fate for Scene, things like that, so there are some considerations there, but basically what you then start doing is you, you start uh, pitching the deck, knowing what's going to come back through, you're thinking about what those turns look like, so, okay, I know that I have... Um, I'm purposely pitching these kind of cards in a group together that's going to allow me to have a pretty strong hand so maybe that's uh say an attack uh plus a non-attack and uh two resource cards to play a, i don't know a 12 attack or something or you know i'm pitching these cards that defend really well because i know my opponent on the second cycle is going to be super aggressive so not only are you sort of pitching your deck to set up your end game you're also pitching your deck to i guess um in relation to what your opponent's probably going to be doing in the end game mm -hmm. and of course you can you can watch their pitch as well yeah, very important to watch their pitch. I remember um, kind of the first time I learned about this was back in Welcome to Wraith, and there is kind of a an essence of counter-pitching, right? So if you see that your opponent is trying to play very aggressively, pitching a lot of blues, you know that like you're going to be successful in the second cycle and be successful in the end game. So you probably play that game to kind of drag them into deep water, right? Like block a lot, you know, pit maybe let's say you're playing Brava, right? You do pitch your Crippling Crush. Let's say you opened it, right? You pitch it down there with your three blues. You know that, hey, my opponent's drawing four blues when I draw this hand. Um, and I can take as much damage, right, from those four blues. His max damage is going to be four or something like that. So I just need to be ab above that life total. Then I can easily get a dominated Crippling Crush here. And there's nothing they can do about it. The second cycle of the deck is... it drastically reduces variance right because you essentially set it up yourself the variance comes with how you're able to set it up based off the pressure your opponent's putting on you or the cards that you are dealt um but you know taking that into account it is like an extremely low variance side of the game so getting into that second cycle getting into that end game everything has been fixed by both players and the hands they are drawing are the hands that they've you know set up to draw so it's completely on them and yeah, I think that pitching correctly from the start and also counter-pitching counter your opponent is really important. And all, you can also recognize what your opponent's doing too when they're pitching. 
Maybe they start taking some medium turns, take some turns off. Like you saw some Monarch if someone was playing Chain, they could be kind of slow rolling you. Um, you see they're, they're pitching like their house, they're pitching their rift binds, and you can just see like, okay, I know he's setting up for a big turn here. I really need to pressure him before he draws the hand before this, banishes those cards, and has that pivot turn that he's setting up for, which I will not be able to block. Um, and that can give you a really good indicator of like, when do I need to pivot? When do I need to pop my gallantry gold and come in and apply as much pressure as possible? Yeah, if you want a good example of, of this, um, and actually not doing it very well, uh, we've got a Monarch gameplay going up next week, and that sounds a bit funny that I'm saying not doing it well, but in that game, uh, my first two turns, I pitch incorrectly, basically, and, and I actually, you, you'll see that I hamper myself on the second cycle, um, you know, reasonably significantly, and it's just through uh, the way that I pitch, and you know, if I think about some of the, the gameplay um, or limited games I've played in the past, I can, you know, give some pretty good examples of this. You know, I've, I've played opponents before where I see them just throwing out reds, just all their cards are red, all their pitch are blue, like you said, Brendan. Um, mm -hmm. And so I make a, a decision pretty quickly to, okay, well, if I can defend this out, if I feel I've got enough cards that defend well in my deck here, um, and I have some pretty strong cards that I'm okay to pitch, I'm just going to start to block pretty pretty significantly. I'm probably going to over-defend, not over-defend, but defend probably a bit more aggressively than I might. And then I'll just pitch a card that I want to see on the bottom of my deck, come back with my weapon. You know, I'll uh, block with three cards. <clears throat> excuse me block for three cards come back with romping club pitch this you know yellow that's gonna be solid to the bottom of my deck next turn maybe this time i'll just block with two cards um because i have two cards that if i pitch the bottom they would be very significant uh, in the late game so things like that you just adapt as you go turn by turn and in reality on the second cycle of the deck there's basically no variance to this game um which is crazy to think right it's all about how you uh play that first cycle of the deck as tight as possible and then you're actually setting up a very very low variance uh, second cycle of the deck yeah and in terms of uh so pitch stacking and second cycles will sound um will sound a bit so maybe a little complex at first a bit daunting right um but i think that the most important thing is to start thinking about it start being conscious about it um and that's sort of the way you get started, right? Because the first time I heard about this concept, um, it was actually employed on me by Sasha Markovic <laughs> at the calling. Um, and like, obviously, he was when he was doing that, he was on a different level. So there was things he was, you know, beating me with that was, it wasn't close because he was doing that thing. Um, and I had to spend like, you know, the better part of a year, just every single game, whether it was casual or competitive, focusing on the second cycle of my deck and thinking about what I was pitching. And it didn't come naturally to me, but after doing it for long enough, you start to pick it up. And one of the most important things that I'll do after a game, um, especially back when I was learning to do this, is that after a game, I'll flip over my cards, look at my pitch. And then what you need to do is you like lay out your pitch, right? And you go, would I ever want to draw this hand? If the answer is no, you're probably not pitching correctly, especially if the game has any potential to go to that end game. Um, and I think that's a really good little tool or game you can use to evaluate your pitch and evaluate, you know, where the game would have gone. Yeah, just lastly on this one, on now second cycles of the deck and, and pitch pitch stacking in order. I think if you're, you know, this is a pretty new concept to you, um, maybe you haven't really been doing this in constructed or whatever it might be. The the easiest way to approach this is to first of all focus on your own deck. Focus on the first two hands you pitch. Just start there. Okay, so what are the first two hands that I pitch and, and I'm going to draw back? Just purely focus on those. Um, the second step is probably to then focus on turn to turn. What are you actually pitching? So uh, say that you go through the first three turns of the game and you pitch only blues. Okay, well, that's something to start considering, right? Like that's going to be some, some pretty weak hands you're going to draw. So 
you can just keep these in mind as really small rules of thumb. And then as you go through and you practice this more and more, you play more games with limited, um, you can just start thinking about what every sort of turn looks like. Okay. And you don't have to remember every single card. That's, you know, that's going to be pretty ridiculous um, unless you've got a photographic memory or you're very good at memorizing, um, uh, you know, like creating memory palaces or whatever. You don't need to be doing that. But if you're remembering just sort of groupings of cards, like, okay, I know I have three blue until one power card or I have... Uh, only two blues here, but I've got two power cards, whatever it might be. Those are sort of, you can start going away uh, or going through in that way. 100%. All right, Hayden. Uh, heading into our kind of next concept here, which is going to be using your life total as a resource. So this is obviously a concept that expands into every format, but in limited, it is quite important because you are back at that 20 life, um, similar to Blitz. And in limited, uh, you really use your life total as a way to pivot. Um Especially if you are reaching the second cycle, it, you want to be at a life total to where it's like, okay, I know my opponent's going to play and hit me with, I need to be able to take that much damage to be able to play this five-card five hand against them. Um, this goes hand-in-hand hand with kind of winning turn cycles. But anyway, Hayden, tell me a little bit about managing your life total as a resource and how to employ that effectively. Yeah, I actually, personally, I always thought this was quite similar across all formats. And then more recently, going back to play some limited, I just forgot how different it is with half the life total and um with the 30 card deck because basically you know you talked about pivot turns there and we're going to get into that in a moment but with the 20 uh with the 20 life total it's very hard to set up more than one pivot turn in a game uh, if you're having to tank damage using your life total as resource to do it so basically mm -hmm. what you end up having to do with your your 20 life or your 15 life maybe even or less for some heroes uh, 15 with kano of course is that you have to work out as you're doing what we talked about in our first sort of, uh, I guess, concept, which is the, the pitch cycling, is like, where are you going to try and set up that pivot turn? Like, where are you going to take the damage? Like, what does that look like? Because uh, I think if you don't sort of think ahead, you'll end up just sort of like leaking damage over the game, not really having a plan. And you might find that what ends up happening is you've used your life total as a resource, which is super important on the wrong turns. So you might have used it to come in for like, I don't know, an attack for 10 um and you used you know four or five life as a resource and then two turns later you go oh i've got like a really powerful hand here a really powerful uh, aggressive hand but it's not a very good defensive hand i don't all these cards defend for two but now you can't afford to not block because you're going to fall into like the range of basically dying the game's going to be close to over um so these are things that are really important as a concept is like when is the right time to use your life total as a resource and not just using your life total as a resource throughout the game um, there's like these peaks and troughs of when you shouldn't and shouldn't do it. And it's, it all comes down to your, your, your deck. So your individual deck, how you've constructed it, the, what the power turns look like, um, and also what your opponent's doing. You know, what do their power turns look like? If their strategy looks pretty consistently, just, you know, come in with weapon, set up an end game. Well, you know that, you know, that what's going to come in the end is this really powerful turn. So do you use your life tool as a resource as the game goes to just like keep putting pressure on them and try to not let them get there? Or do you, uh, not not use your life total early and then wait till they get back to their power turns and then use your life total as a resource to like push back damage on them so this is this really sort of um it's a bit of a mini game in some ways about how you use that resource your life as a resource yeah there's sort of a level one kind of trap in flesh and blood which is one of the one of the most common questions i used to get um especially in the early days which is like why would i ever block right um, why not, if I feel like I can do more damage to my opponent every single turn, why would I just never block and then just try to race them? And it mostly comes down to five card hands and pivot turns, right? Like you might be able to win like two cycles of four card hands against your opponent because you have an inherently more aggressive deck. 
But then your opponent plays a five-card hand against you, is able to tank damage with their life total after blocking out. Sits that arsenal, plays a big five-card hand against you, and then maybe hits you with something that you can't interact with, like a dominated spinal crush, or maybe it's just a huge turn um, where they put your life total low to where you'll be forced to interact later in the game and block when you don't necessarily want to. Um, so this stuff is really, really important. And yeah, I mean, it kind of all comes... I mean, this cycles perfectly into pivot turns, and pivot turns in, in Limited are... They're similar to how, you know, in Blitz and in Classic Constructed, but differences usually only get one in a game, and the pivot turns really kind of make, him, make or break, you know, that one pivot turn make, make or breaks whether you're going to win the game. Um, and you can pivot when you've set up to pivot, right, like I've set up to play this five-card hand, or you can pivot to disrupt your opponent setting up a big five-card hand against you, which is often one of the most detrimental things you can do to your opponent is understanding when, you know, when they're going to be able to try to pressure you with a big turn and then forcing them to block with cards from hand and not be able to play that turn against you. Yeah, that's and that's. Uh, I think these two go hand in hand using life total as a resource and pivot turns because effectively to create a pivot turn, you need to use life total as a resource and to deny your opponent pivot turns, you need to attack their their resource, which is their life total in efficient ways. And, and to be honest, one of my favorite things in Flesh and Blood Limited is like attacking pivot turns, is countering pivot turns, not letting my opponent get off their pivot turn that they've set up. Um, I think it's, you know, it's such a, if you can craft these these game states where you're allowed to do that, I think it's fantastic. Like, and it's because there's also these these life total thresholds as well. So, um, you know, in Monarch Limited, like usually like six or seven life total was a pretty important threshold because your opponent could um, probably present that damage pretty readily on any given turn. So once you got to that point, you kind of knew that you were never going to get four or five card hands again unless your opponent wanted you to. So. Um, Often what you would, you know, what one of the things I would like to do is like I would get a card into Arsenal maybe one or two turns earlier. That was like a really important card. And as soon as they had like a slower turn or something, then I'd be like, okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna hit them with my five card pivot. Like this is my pivot turn. Like I've already set it up, now we're ready to go. Um, and there's there's lots of little things like that you can do in the limited format. Um, but it is it all comes down to basically when to pivot and um, when your opponent's gonna pivot. So you're trying to work out what does your pivot turn look like, but also you need to be really cognizant of what does your opponent's pivot turn look like. Because if they, you know, if you're setting up your five card pivot and they have there's the turn that you've just set yours up, so they, you know, you set yours up, you're ready to go, and then they just come in with theirs, um, and you're, you know, now in threat of dying if you don't block with cards, well, your, your pivot's gone, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think that um, knowing how to disrupt your opponent's pivot turn is one of the most important things you can do in limited. That will make you the more dynamic player and the player that's able to kind of pull out, I think, more on average, right? When you're playing, you know, you're playing both sides of the table, not just focusing on yourself, and you're able to disrupt your opponent when they're trying to set up that big turn. Um, if you're sitting on the other side of the table from that, it's definitely the most frustrating thing in limited is when somebody understands how to do that. And it seems like every time you're about to win a game, Someone, you know, comes in with lethal, they overextend into you and you have to end up, you know, blocking with one card from him, which just, you know, takes your 15 damage turn down to a, a six or seven damage turn. And yeah. that's how big it can be. Like blocking, taking one card out of hand in during a pivot turn can be the difference of like double damage. We can be talking about like six to 12 damage. You can be, you know, come down from 12 down to six because they just won't have the resources. So yeah. it's huge being able to recognize that and pressure the, uh, pressure the opponents when they're trying to do that. Yeah, I, I can give an example because I think this is this is as a concept is not super it's not intuitive and it's not super straightforward and easy to understand. But one of the, the best examples I think I can give and that's sort of quite clear is um go I'm gonna go back to your earlier example, which is the crippling crush. So let's say you're um you're brute and you're playing into so you're Rhino, you're playing into Bravo and welcome to Race Sealed. Your opponent pitches a red crippling crush with three blues in a turn. 
and you now know that they're going to be getting back to that uh, next turn. So they're going to have that, that four-card hand, which is going to be able to come in for uh, 11. Um, or actually, let's take it a step further. Let's say that uh, they pitched the Crippling Crush, and then they pitched you know four blues. Uh, you now know that the, that Crippling Crush is sitting in Arsenal, and they've got the, the three or four blues drawing to the hand next turn. So you know they can come with 11 dominate, let's say that. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be able to finish you off. Now you're sitting there going, okay, well, I have to, I have to, absolutely have to take minimum one card of their hand so they can't dominate, uh, preferably two so they can't even play the card. Um, but let's just say you work on it as uh, they're on six life. Okay, well, now I'm going to come in. If I can present nine minimum, I know that I can take one of those blues from their hand. And then on their turn, uh, I've disrupted their pivot. They're going to come back in with just the Crippling Crush for 11. I can block with, say, three cards from hand and, and I'm not going to be dead. Um, and then you've kind of, you've, I guess, stalled their pivot turn. And in fact, you've actually ruined it because they probably just had to play the crippling just for pure damage. But if you, you know, if you weren't able to do that, say your turn, you're sitting there with your four card hand, it's like, oh, okay, well, I can come in for, uh, I can come in for, you know, five damage and then arsenal this, this really good card for my turn. Um, then you come in five damage, they take five to, to one and then they come back in and kill you. So that's, that's what pivot turns can look like. And that's what countering pivot turns can look like. 100%. Um, I also want to talk about just quickly because like everything really leads into this, which is winning turn cycles. So we we talked about a little bit of a, you know, what I said was a level and trap. Um, in terms of some players, we'll talk about you know why would I ever block, and it, it is really about winning turn cycles, right? Um, so that doesn't always look like dealing the most damage to your opponent. Sometimes it looks like dealing a, you know, a medium amount of damage, but then getting an arsenal and later playing the five card hand off that arsenal. There was an example of this in Hayden and I's recent sealed game where he actually went to sort of pivot into me. Um, it wasn't really his pivot turn per se, but it was sort of a, an early to mid-game pivot where he wanted to put a, a, apply some pressure. And I just blocked with three cards from hand, and then I played an Illuminate Red out of hand. So what that threatened now was four damage and another card in my soul. I had Gallantry Gold, so that would threaten that huge Gallantry Gold to turn later when I had the one blue. So it was an interesting, interesting you know, kind of part of the game where I was able to block with three cards out of hand, but still win the turn cycle. Yeah, because you had, you know, you blocked for, I think it was, I think it might have been eight that you defended for. So you defended for eight, and then you came back in for four. So that's 12 damage, which if you think about turn cycles, right, 12 damage net is like kind of the, that's the benchmark, right? Three cards, say it's like three cards that block for three, and it's a card that attacks for three, or it's defend for two cards for six, come in for six with an attack action or something. Um, that's kind of the base rate uh, as the game of Flesh and Blood has kind of evolved. But in that instance, you know, that was, say, 12 damage across, so 12 damage net. But you also came in with, like, a really important break point at 4 attack. So that makes it difficult for me to win the next turn cycle uh, because to stop that 4, I'd have to block with 2 cards or I have to take a damage. Um, so that could be, like, a net loss there. And also you present, like, a really, really, really relevant on-hit effect when I've just tried to swing tempo and take the front foot, right? Like, the turn before, I took damage to try and pivot a little bit and get the tempo back. And then all of a sudden, Brendan's blocking out the most of my tempo turn and now coming back with an on-hit effect that if I let that hit, I've taken four damage and I've given him a really relevant on-hit effect. Um, so he's he's more than won that turn cycle. Um, so yeah, like the first kind of concept when you think about turn cycles is like net damage is the easiest way to think about it. So, you know, um, the classic example is you block with three cards from hand that defend for three and then you pitch to come in with your Anathos for four. That's 13 damage. Okay, I'm one up on the... Uh, one up on the on the um, net damage of the turn cycle of the kind of base rate, and I get a, a break point at four. But then, like you say, Brendan, right? There's all these other factors. Okay, maybe yeah. I take two damage Deck over the density, turn cycle. Fatigue, yeah, exactly. All this kind of stuff, well, right? Even just even simpler than that, I take two damage 
uh, on this turn cycle. I lose the turn cycle by two damage, but I got a really important piece into my arsenal. Like that could be super, that could be winning the turn cycle. Or I attack in for six damage with my Anathos. I blocked with two trash cards in my turn that don't mean anything in my deck. And I got two of my opponent's best cards on the block in the form of two like red cards. Maybe I got a Crippling Crush on the block or something like I win the turn cycle because the cards I drew out of their deck as opposed to the cards that came out of my deck were infinitely better. Mm-hmm. Now one of my favorite concepts in Flesh and Blood, which is uh, deck damage in the deck and threat <laughs> density, something that's actually really important in the chain deck currently, um, specifically versus control, but in limited it's going to be in every single game. Um, this, is, this is most relevant probably when your opponent does block you out. Because I know if we looked at like Arcane Rising, there was sort of a deck that was pretty popular that would mostly block and swing with the weapon. Um, and you would have serious issues with your deck just being thinned out of literal damage. Um, and the whole I- idea of the, the deck that was blocking you was to run you out of threats and just hit you for one, right? With an on-hit trigger. Um, so this is really important and limited. And when you talk about deck and threat density, it also goes hand-in-hand hand with how you pitch, right? If you're pitching those blues, the second cycle of your deck could be very, very weak. Um, your opponent can counter pitch, put reds down there, and just blow you out in the mid to late game. Yeah, it's um, it's so funny. I'd be sitting there mid game, right? My opponent's on fifteen. I'm on twelve. Uh, we've you know we're about to hit hit the second cycle of the deck, and um, I just look and I go. I mean, I've I've, I've won this game. I think there's basically no way my opponent can win. And the reason of that um, is often they just have no red cards left in the deck. I know what their pitch is. I know they've blown most of their threat density, like you talk about. And I know that the threat density left in the deck is basically just their weapon and a couple of small attacks. Uh, whereas my threat density, maybe I'd pitch like two red, three really key yellow cards, um, and I have my threat density is really high, and I know they're going to struggle to you know block that out and maybe finish the game. So the the threat density is is not only quite easy to see because you cycle through it, uh, but it's like one of the most important factors. I can't count the amount of times I've just seen, um, and, and this has I mean happened to me as well. But I've also seen quite a lot of just people run out of those red cards they you know they maybe they play them early or they just don't have enough in their deck even um a classic example with like katsu is like uh and and limited you'd come in with katsu you'd like force an on hit effect and then you'd like discard a red card to go and find another red card and that's like one threat gone from your deck uh just to go and find yeah. another threat things like that so um threat density is like super super important and actually monarch felt um with some classes it was more important than well, actually significantly more important than others and i think that's why a lot of people defaulted to playing prison because the threat density didn't matter as much you could create your own threats with uh your soul and with um iris whereas in a deck like chain you know you're banishing cards off the top you're actively removing threats from your deck by banishing off the top if you maybe haven't set your deck up right for the second cycle or even on the first cycle if you're aggressively shackling you could lose important red cards so um, threat density you could see in that format was like really really key for for most decks yeah and finally a universal concept in flesh and blood but also just in, you know just more important and limited i think it kind of feels like limited just pulls all of the concepts and makes them you know amplifies them but yep. this is going to be playing playing to win right um playing to win and it sounds it sounds so basic but i think that playing to win is probably the most important concept in flesh and blood that the most people actually don't employ um and the thing is is like when you're playing at a high level it's hard to win a game on accident maybe if you're in an aggro format right like that can happen but especially in a format like limited generally it won't right so that means pitching your deck correctly setting up five card hands setting up pivot turns and understanding what your win conditions in the deck are and how your deck you know is conceivably going to win the game yeah i mean 
the I guess the base level of, of Flesh and Blood Limited is like win the turn cycle, right? Which we talked about. But um, it's going to be very hard to to win a, a significant portion of your games if you're not playing to actually win, which looks like, as you say, it's all the concepts actually that we just talked about. That's what playing to win looks like. Um, and the big the big part of it is like setting up that deck for the second cycle is probably, I would say, the biggest. Uh, and then threat density and then um, identifying what the pivot turns look like. Those are kind of the, the three key ones, I think, probably in that order as well. But yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. It's um, it's so much more prevalent, and it's so funny. You talked about all the concepts, you know, of of flesh and blood uh, uh, here in limited. They're just, they're just. That's that's what limited is basically. It's all the core concepts of what flesh and blood is a game, really wrapped into this tight package. And um, the person or the player who can execute on the most fundamentals uh, is generally going to be favoured. Uh, is generally going to find success if they're really across these um, across these key sort of fundamentals. And of course, you know, there's like. There is there are some variance aspects, right? Like what you draw on the first cycle of your deck is still variance. Uh, what you open in your sealed pool, there's still some variance. But um, we're going to talk about sealed in a minute. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, generally these these core concepts of flesh and blood get really tied together and limited, and and allow you to um, to focus on the core fundamentals. Yeah, and speaking of sealed, I guess it's a good time to hop into sealed Do concepts it. with that. So starting, we're going to say uh, this is sealed, of course. Like I said, but how to pick your hero? Um, this is really interesting. I think that there's a lot of traps and then there's a lot of kind of strategies you can employ to make the right decision. Um, so I'm just going to start off here, Hayden. And this is probably not the most fundamental one, but this is, I remember this in Monarch and it was really, really important, which is uh, understanding your win conditions and what you're opening. There was multiple times in Monarch. I mean, I've I've talked badly about uh, about Memorial Ground to kind of too much, let's say. But there was times in Monarch when I would actually play Memorial Ground in my deck, um, specifically because I knew I only had like one Herald of Tenacity as a win condition. So I was like, okay, if I play my Herald of Tenacity early, it does you know a little bit of damage, or if I have to block with it, then I actually don't have a way to close out the game. Like I don't have a way to win the game if my opponent recognizes the low power level of my deck and then it decides to block me out and kind of fatigue me. So I was like, okay, I need to set up a big dominate turn with a tenacity on the bottom of the deck and i need an insurance to be able to do that twice or be able to recoup from having to block with the card and use it later you also saw this with things like red minnowism and red overload something that you could you know on the second cycle of the deck you could pitch those very close to each other and then get a nice six dominate with go again on your opponent usually it's it could be a good way to kind of finish out the game um i even i ran it in my levia deck that i won on a pre-release with because i was so light on dominate and so light on win conditions i knew that a lot of my opponents would try to block me out um and levia can present damage over the kind of block value of your opponent's hand but i knew that like you know if i got into the very late game my opponent was on you you know four or five or something like that they could conceivably fatigue me so i added this win condition in would pitch it together and then would dominate them for six with go again so mm-hmm. it's an interesting kind of an interesting concept important important to keep in mind when you're looking at your seal pool which is you know win conditions and ultimately like what cards i winning the game with yeah i mean it's playing to win right <laughs> is knowing exactly how you're gonna how you're gonna win um what these combinations of like cards look like the interactions of cards um so when you open your seal pool it's like okay well like if I'm looking at building any of these three or four heroes, whatever it might be in that limited format, what do the cards that are going to actually help me win the game look like? You know, you can start to pull these out pretty quickly. I like to pull them to the front. Maybe I'm looking at Bolton. I've got like a V of the Vanguard here. Uh, maybe I've got like a, a red pound for a pound. Great generic sort of one condition that I could play towards. Maybe I've got a Warmonger's Recital plus, like you say, an Overload. Like that could be a one condition. So I'm always pulling these out and looking at like what are the generic ones? What are the class specific ones? 
what deck would actually give me the, the best amount of win conditions and what does that look like? And I did just want to say one thing because it's, it's really interesting. I think you talked about fatigue, Brendan, and you know, you've had um, people try and fatigue you and fatigue probably in limited, especially in sealed has, I think been really overrepresented um, because it isn't super easy or super intuitive to um, be able to set up these win conditions in your deck and, and play, play to them. Like that is, that is a, a bit of a more difficult concept that sort of comes with, with time. Right. So the default to, I guess, just be like, well, I'll just block everything out is like an easier strategy. But it's not it's not necessarily a good one to be honest. And one of my favorite things sitting down and against an opponent in sealed is like if they immediately start trying to fatigue me, um, and they're not putting any pressure on me. Okay, well now I have all the time in the world to just set up whatever hands I want, whatever sort of in game scenarios I want because they're putting no pressure on me to do so. Yeah, it was really interesting in Monarch. So um, depending on like the way you viewed Monarch, it was pretty easy to win a lot of games early in the format because. Prism was perceived as overpowered, and there was a concept with Prism um, called Prism Pile, where you'd basically just, obviously Prism in that format, I also agree with this as well, is that Prism is the easiest to do with the least amount of cards, you need the kind of the least you know, high power cards, you can kind of just chuck stuff together and it's okay. But people interpret that as kind of like Prism Pile, where they would get the Prism cards, get the generics, throw them all together, and then just kind of fatigue people, and they would have those really discounted cards for you know, what Heralds are, right? So discounted cards that do a lot of damage. And this was like, I've sat across most opponents, especially when I play something like Levy or Chain that would just, um, you have like a 35, 37 card deck and would try to fatigue me. The thing is in Monarch is that like every card blocks for two other than the class cards. So it was actually quite easy to beat. And, you know, with the power level of the deck being so, you know, it takes such a hit from doing something like that. Um, it was something you could definitely capitalize on if you knew how to set up the second cycle. Yeah, I can... Um... In Monarch, actually, I can recall there was th- there's three games where I've been fatigued in all of the Monarch format for the you know for the hundreds of limited games I played. And I can remember them very vividly because after the game, I sort of thought back and thought, well, actually, if I'd if I'd been a bit more aware to what my opponent was doing, I could have <laughs> could have played very differently in this game. Um, I just yeah I've n- never felt like it's been a a very relevant strategy. I think a lot of people it was like a big strategy in Arcane Rising as well. Getting a little bit off topic here, but I think it's, it's interesting to talk about because I think it's a strategy that people again in Tales of Aria will look at. And um, you know what? If you're on the precipice, I think if you're thinking about these things, you can identify ways to beat these fatigue strategies pretty easily. Um, you just kind of need to be planning for it. So yeah, for sure. So let's talk about kind of the most um, important and most macro concept is like. Let's say we're at the Tales of Aria world premiere. You open our packs. I wish. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> okay. You'll live vicariously through me. We open our packs. Um, how do we pick our class? So one thing that I like to do, and I think that this is pretty common, but just going to say it in case some people don't know about it or this could be helpful to them, is that let's say we're playing Monarch. What I would do is I would lay out my cards based on class, so Warrior, Illusionist, um, Brute, and Runeblade. And then I would lay out the talent cards, so Light and Shadow, and then the generics all together. That, so especially when you're very new into a format, and especially something like Tales of Aria, where you probably haven't seen all of the cards already, it really helps to lay them out in that manner so that you can really see where the density is. Um, when you're just kind of like flicking through a pile, it's not as visual. So what I like to do is see, yeah, just see the number of cards that are in each hero. And I definitely feel like I'm at a cursory glance. I'm drawn to classes where I have a higher density of cards. Um, not that that is the correct choice and what you should pick, but if there is a class where I have, you know, you know, you can get somewhere like five, six class cards and they're all not very good, then yeah, that's probably going to be kind of an, an almost uh, as close to automatic kind of toss out as you can get. I would still <laughs> compare that to your generics and see where to go from there. But Hayden, do you do the same thing? 
yeah, I'll always start with that way and, and have a look. Um, it won't necessarily actually fully dictate where I start to build. The thing I, I like to do next is uh, I will always look at the generics. So I actually think the generics are a lot more telling than, in, in most formats, a lot more telling than uh, your class cards. And the reason for that is that generics on the face of it, you'd say, oh, generics, you just play the best, you know, 12 generics and then the best, I don't know, we'll say the best 16 generics and your best 14 class cards or whatever. But not all generics are created equal for every single deck, right? So um, a lot of generics work a lot better in certain uh, heroes or certain decks than they do in others, or they synergize with certain class cards better than they do with other class cards or hero abilities. Um, so I like to look and say, okay, like where are my generics actually pointing me towards as well? So if I use like the, the Monarch um, sealed example, you know, cards like, okay, Belittle Minimalism, like those are cards that I know are going to work a lot better in Bolton and Chain than they would in Prism, for instance. Uh, or a card like Seek Horizon. Well, actually, that's a card that you know I really like having on Livia, but not necessarily in the other uh, the other decks. So I'm looking at where my generics are kind of pulling me, and then I'll go back to the steel, uh, back to the class cards, and go, okay, well, my generics are kind of telling me that like you know I've got some really strong support for Bolton. What does my Bolton pull look like? Oh, it looks quite weak. Okay, well, maybe maybe it's not going to be where I want to be. Or maybe actually, no, this Bolton pull looks pretty pretty solid. Um, it's probably on par with my Livia pool I have over here, but my generics are really supporting my my Bolton class, and I have some you know I have some good win conditions in Bolton and some good generic win conditions. That's kind of how I'm looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I do the same thing. The generics kind of point me in the class initially. Then obviously um, synergy in your class cards are are really important, but it is also class dependent. So if we if we want to look at Monarch as the example, um, in Prism you could probably get away with not the most synergistic class cards where if you're playing something like chain um yeah you're gonna need some synergist synergistic runeblade cards to kind of pull that off um you're gonna be looking for the arcane damage looking to set up the banish all this kind of stuff um especially considering most people would probably try to fatigue you uh bolton's the same way bolton i felt like you could get away with a lot of generics and weaker weaker class cards it is nice to have the charge cards if you can get them um but you could get away with less and levia um, you needed the six powers, right? Like you needed to be able to do what Levia wanted to do. If you didn't, um, it was probably a path of pretty hard resistance to play that deck. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And I think you see that, and you're going to see that in most limited formats that each class has their own sort of unique uh, needs and wants uh, requirements to play them. And um, I think you'll, you know, we'll talk about those more as well as we get into tales. Like, what does each class look like, and what are some of these, you know, really key factors? Um, but just at a base level, if you're rocking up to uh, you know, a limited event this week. Those are some of the things you can think about. Like, what do I actually think that a Bolton needs? Or what do I think that uh, maybe a Katsu needs if you're playing Welcome Direct? Like, whatever it might be. Absolutely. So let's say I've I've picked my class. I have my generics. You know, I have kind of my 35 cards that I'm considering. Uh, it doesn't sound like quite a bit of a luxury to be able to consider 35. Sometimes you'll just have the 30. Um, but the next thing I do is... Yeah, yeah, some cracked bubbles. Uh, the next thing I do is I will look at my ratios. So what I'll do is I'll separate three piles um, of all the cards that I have, or at least the 30 that I'm going to play. I start with kind of reds on top, yellows in the middle, blues on bottom. Most important thing is just to kind of make their, make sure that I have the resources to do what my deck wants to do. Uh, we The most kind of the easiest example of this, I think, is looking back on Welcome to Wraith. If you played Bravo and Sealed, um, the main thing you wanted for your deck was blues, right? So if you just didn't have blues, let's say you could have Crippling Crush, you could have Spinal Crush, you could have all the good cards, um, all the Majestics. It didn't matter. You really just need the blues. You need to be able to swing the hammer for six, and you want to be able to dominate things. 
So I like to look at the ratios, understand what my ratios are, make sure they work in my deck. And if they do, I'll go ahead and kind of see if I can get a cursory memorization on how many blues are actually in the deck, how many yellows are actually in the deck, and how many reds are in the deck. After that, um, in a format like Monarch, I do tend to take an extra look at how many of my cards will block for three and block for two. This is going to be less important in some formats, but in, in Monarch, it was really, really important, especially like, let's say I was going up against Chain. Um, Galaxy Black sometimes comes in for three. Block twos can be really, really bad against that. So it's important to understand like, okay, how likely am I to run into a block three, uh, block three in this next hand, or maybe we're going to the second cycle. The second cycle is where chain is a lot stronger, right? And you're like, okay, chains, you know, reach, we're reaching the second cycle. Chain has four shackles. It's really likely Galaxy Black is going to be turned on. I'm really going to want three blocks at this stage in the game to be able to block out that Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, all your ratios are super key, and I like that. That's exactly the same thing I do. Lay lay the cards out. Um, maybe, and I just want to clarify as well. When I say twenty seven cards, I don't mean you know there's only twenty seven cards I can play. That's basically never going to happen. There'll be cards, but they're just cards I'm not happy to play. You know, maybe there's twenty seven cards I'm happy to play, and then I'm just searching for three more. Just wanted to clarify that. Um, but yeah, so I'm laying out the the ratios. Maybe like Brendan says, we're looking at like about thirty two cards that would be okay to have in the deck. Um, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I've got these set of blues here. I know they're going to be able to play the pay for my cards. Maybe I'm playing some like Bolton and actually, you know, I've got a lot of zero charge cards and I don't actually need that many blues. So maybe my yellows are more important, whatever it might be, Livia, Sixes, everything like that. Um, and then like you say, yeah, as well, the, the, the cards that block for three, I think um, I'm always counting up like what those look like. But the, the main thing I'm actually doing as well, once I've sort of had a judge of my ratios, is now that I've got them laid out in those kind of piles is like, what does an average hand look like for me? What is the average sort of damage output my hands can look like? And what am I, what is my pitch going to look like probably so that I'm then starting to think about, well, what's the second cycle of my deck going to look like? So, you know, if I've got a few um, like yellow and red cards that cost one, maybe let's just say, I would go, well, those are actually quite nice because I know I can potentially pitch a red to play one of those on a turn um, and then cycle back through to that red that I've pitched. You know, like um, I can use like a specific example. Maybe you're playing uh chain and you uh, have a tremor of arathiel maybe you um have a yellow card that you pitch to play something and then tremor and then that yellow card's going to come back through and it's a yellow card that you're like excited to to have on the second cycle either to banish with chain's ability or to draw um those are kind of things that you can start thinking about while you're laying out your piles and something that i actively think about is like what does my deck sort of look what how's the game going to play out absolutely um hayden is there anything else that you want to mention about picking your hero and sealed before we move on um i would just think about what your opponents are likely going to be doing like although it's not like constructed where you have these set meta games you'll start to see in limited formats that like a bit of a meta develops we saw it in monarch with people defaulting to i guess more sort of um patient controlly blockout decks like that was a pretty common theme so if that's you if you know that's kind of meta it's like okay well i know probably like 30 plus percent of the field are going to do that what does my deck play like into those and then just making sure that you have the ability to play into probably what most most people are going to build um and arcane rising this was people you know trying to fatigue okay well i have this azalea deck and i know i have like really good end game if i just pitch it and set it up so that's my that's my plan against them but um you need to sort of i think think about that 100 and i think that you know, kind of ending here, I do have a, a sub point off of that, which is to, especially in the early, the early stage of a format, whether that's at the world premiere or at the pre-release in the following weekend, um, I think it's important to not fall for picking the perceived overpowered class early in a format. Um, a lot of a lot of the talk you'll hear about what's overpowered and what's not, especially when we're one weekend into the format, will be mostly noise and won't be correct. 
Um, and if you are a player that is willing to kind of put in more time and be more open-minded about the format, I think you can really use this as an edge, right? So in, um, in Monarch, for example, we did see a lot of players hopping on Prism, almost agnostic of their pool if they would just hop on Prism no matter what. And it was really, really easy to abuse those strategies with decks like Levia and Chain, where you could just deck stack against them and their decks just weren't powerful enough to punish you. Um, Hayden, I think you actually won a pre-release on Chain as well. I did. Well, yep, I yep. won one on Levia. Yeah. Basically, employing that exact concept was, um, I think, well, it was like 80% of my opponents were Prisms. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's, uh, there's like this this early trap to fall into, which is like, uh, people will identify like the easiest strategy to play, right? And find success with it. But I think you just have to just take a step back and identify how to adapt to that. And I think the best way to do that is just be really like pragmatic in the way that you deck build. Think about these key concepts take a look like how am i going to win the game like always think about that like what does my like setup of my deck look like and you'll be able to come across these these strategies and you'll be able to beat them all right Hayden, talk to me about when to play um 30 cards and when to play more uh yeah good question um basically play 30 cards unless you have a really good reason to not play 30 cards so um if i think about some of these specific reasons they could be and to be honest there's, there's not actually that many um, one of them could be that your deck is, so it's going to be a strategy based thing. It could be that one of them is that your, your deck is reasonably, um, underpowered and you actually just have no ways to set up like end games with like dominate and things like that. And you know that you're going to need to rely on blocking really efficiently against your opponent. Um, and then just getting through the mid game with like chipping damage in. So you're going to have to expend cards at a more rapid rate than your opponent would, um, because maybe they get to attack with their weapon more or something. So those that's a that's a reason. I wouldn't, for instance, on the flip side of that though, if I was like, oh, I'm gonna fatigue my opponent, uh, I'm gonna just put play a 40 card deck. I, I wouldn't be doing that. I don't think that's ever a reasonable thing to do, because um, I'm never gonna plan on just fatiguing my strategy. Because I would expect my opponent can adapt to that and beat me. So um, what instead I would do is like play like 32, 33, and just know that some of my my cards I'm gonna have to expend uh, and just try and set up a my my maybe I've got five good cards. Maybe I'm trying to set up those for an end game. So that's kind of one reason I. To be fair, I barely ever play more than 30. I think I've played some chain decks where I've played like 31, 32 because um, I know that if I'm playing more than 30, the first two cards I pitch, uh, I'm going to draw back to. There's, there's a, a things like that. Um, sometimes I feel like I can't really decide on a card I want to cut and I'm okay with playing 31. I don't think that's necessarily always the best way, but um, if, if, they're, if my cards are all strong in the matchup, then I'm probably okay to do that. But yeah, very rarely am I playing more than more than 30 in the seal format. Yeah, totally agree with you. All right, so kind of our final thing here for sealed, um, but this will kind of bleed over into draft, is sideboard cards. So sideboarding in limited is kind of a treat. <laughs> we saw in Monarch there was a lot of hate cards, right? There was a lot of really, really good sideboard cards that you could bring in for specific matchups. Things you can think about are Eclipse Existence, Ray of Hope, um, not blinding beam talisman of dowsing yeah belief like i mean there's so many actually it's crazy it can help punish your opponent um and that's like a really really cool concept and something to think about um sometimes you don't always have that luxury but that being said you know having a core whether that's 27 or it can even be 30 and just subbing and subbing out is really important and then understanding um that you do have access to a sideboard because there are a lot of players that i i've seen in flesh and blood that um 
play without the concept of a sideboard it will just kind of play their deck no matter what and i think that effectively sideboarding against your opponent and that, this could be as simple as like okay i can play more block twos into this opponent or if i i need to side into weaker cards that are block threes because um you know say it's something like galaxy black is going to really punish you for blocking for two um like that's that's an aspect of sideboarding as well yeah i have a, I have a bit to say on this one but i just Something's just kind of popped into my mind. So sorry, I'm bouncing around a little bit. I just do just want to go back to the playing 30 versus more than 30. Um, one of the things that playing more than 30 cards does is it actually actively reduces the strength of the synergies in your deck. Uh, it reduces your ability to control the second cycle of your deck because you're having to get through more cards before you can set up your second cycle. Uh, it's probably going to mean that you play more cards that block two or defend for two, which is going to punish you when your opponents have proactive plans. So Basically, there's just so many reasons to never play more than 30 cards. Um, I just wanted to kind of reiterate that because I, I, I think I was a bit like kind of wishy-washy on that. But I think that there's almost no reason to play more than 30 cards. And you, you do need a very good reason to be doing it. Um, sorry, Brendan. Just want to jump back to that. But yeah, sideboard cards. This is something that I'm really <laughs> quite passionate about as well is that when I'm building out my sealed deck, I'd probably end up between like 40 to 20, sort of 8, 29 cards, depending on what it looks like as like a core of my deck. Um, and that's because it might be, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to play a lot of those cards in every single matchup. Like maybe my 25th, 26th, 27th card are probably basically always going to be the same, but in some matchups, they're not going to be. And the reason that I actually separate those out is because I might be like, I'm probably thinking really heavily about my ratios. So let's say that, uh, my, my 24 card core has six blues, but I know I'm always going to play minimum eight blues, say. Um, but I'm probably always basically going to play these two blues. But in some matchups, I'm going to replace maybe my blue um, Adrenaline Rush with a blue Impenetrable Belief because, you know, I'm playing to Shadow. And I want to make sure my ratios stay the same. So I separate those kind of block of cyborg cards out so that I make sure I'm not messing up my ratios. Because um, one of the traps you can kind of fall into is like, okay, well, I have this 30-card core, and in this matchup, I'm going to bring in my two Impenetrable Belief. And then you just start taking out different cards each time. Um, or, you know, you take out, you're like, oh, I think I just want to take out this blue card, this yellow card, because it's not as good against my opponent. And then what you realize you end up doing is that you end up just putting more blues into your deck and, and messing around with your ratios. So I do like to have, like, the core really set out, and then the cyborg cards that are kind of um, the ones that would either come out if they were sitting in my core, or the ones that would come in if they weren't sitting in my core, are separate, just so it's really clean and easy. And I think that just lets me focus on um, keeping those ratios, keeping my win conditions, keeping all the things nice and neat. 100%. I totally agree. And I think that, just to kind of reiterate, I think that sideboarding is one of the really cool things we have access to um, in Limited and in Flesh and Blood in general, especially in these like talent-based ones where there seems to be um, more hate-based cards. can be really, really fun yeah. to play around with. Yeah. Um, but Hayden, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, even, even in older formats, so even if I think about like Welcome to Wraith, which had less perceived sort of hate cards, I was probably sideboarding like two or three cards almost in every single matchup. Um, and they would just be like subtle things like uh, different win conditions even so maybe uh, you know I was playing Brute and I was playing into Guardian um, and I was really conscious of in that matchup I wanted to take more card more cards from the hand so maybe I'd play some of these cards that had go again that or like conditional go again that I didn't think were as strong in other decks um, or maybe I know that they've got a lot of block threes and then the game's gonna go long and they'd be very defensive maybe I'd play something like a demolition crew that I wouldn't play into Katsu for instance because it defends for two so there's always reasons to, to sort of play different cards. And I think if you're not sideboarding, there's probably something going on there. There's something to look at. I think it's almost always generally correct to be sideboarding because it'll just be like little small tweaks that you can easily make to, to help yourself in those matchups. All right, Hayden, on to draft. So I need to, I need to kind of pick your brain here. What do, uh, what do talents mean for draft? Give me sort of the 411. 
I mean, the the draft system is such a cool design. Um, the old draft, you know, like the the core, just four classes, was like a great format. But when you add talents and you just elevate, I think the draft format to such a really cool, um, a really cool format where you get to make a lot of decisions. So talents basically allow you to start to move towards a talent. So maybe you you first pick a light card, second pick a light card but they don't commit you to a class, right? So one of the tough things about draft often is that you you know, take three brute cards and then all of a sudden brute's dried up and actually brute's been cut off from your right and you need to move into a different class and your first three cards you have to completely abandon. But you know, if uh, if I had taken three shadow cards, for instance, let's use Monica as an example, taken three shadow cards and I'm thinking brute's looking pretty good here and then all of a sudden brute dries up, um, and I can start taking chain cards. Well, you know, my first three picks aren't a waste, for instance. So that's a very simple oversimplification of what it does for you. But basically it allows players to start to, you know, hedge a little bit, start to move into these talents, uh, but not necessarily have to fully commit to a class. You might take two shadow cards, one um, one chain card, uh, and you might have to abandon that chain card, but maybe you don't have to abandon the shadow cards. So it's a, a really cool thing that in a, in a game where every card you draft is so important because you're going to draft 45 cards and you're only going to play 30, and you know, some you know you're gonna get some picks late on, some packs late on where there's cards that you can't play because they're not in your class, or there's generics that just don't work in your deck, for instance, that you don't want to play. Um, that 30 is like a pretty, pretty precious limit. There's a reason crack ball ball is in this game, and it's uh it's because of draft. Yeah. It's uh I think that the the true oversimplification is that talents make draft better. Um draft is actually my favorite format in Flesh and Blood. Um, I think it's criminally underplayed, but the Same. game the, the, the game design seems to be really centered around draft, and it's it's such a good experience once you get into it. I am more than looking forward to when you know we will get those kind of weekly drafts here locally. But I digress. Hayden, let's talk about staying open. So we touched upon this um, kind of initially there with the talents, but what does it mean to stay open, and why do you want to stay open? So kind of what this looks like is like in your first few packs, generally you don't want to. And this is a heuristic, right? You don't want to be like you don't go by this every single time, but generally you want to be staying open, right? So what that means is that you're picking generics, or you know that could be just a straight generic, or like talking about monarch, a uh, shadow, or a light card, because you don't want to overcommit into a class too early. Because if you do, like Hayden said, in something like draft, you can end up with not enough playable cards in which you'll have to play cracked bobble. This is a serious threat anytime you go into a draft, and you're setting yourself up to kind of realize that. Um, if you do commit too early. So if you just see, let's say I open a Welcome to Wraith pack, I see an Alpha Rampage, I pick that first pick, and then I just, you know, kind of draft brute, every good brute card that comes across. Um, that could lead to me getting cut in the second and third pack, and then, you know, obviously not playing enough good cards. So staying open, I think, is super important. Um, Hayden, talk to me about how you do it and why it's so effective. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on you know draft um, philosophies and staying open versus committing to cards because it's there's a, there's a lot of different schools of thought um one school of thought is you know the probably the primary one that works best for most players and is it allows you to adapt it's maybe a bit harder to execute on and sometimes it doesn't play off but it's like staying open right so uh you open up your first pack and you just take like the best generic in there where you take the best non-class specific card so it could be uh, a talent card even in monarch or it could be a piece of equipment right and then yeah. you just you react because the person upstream of you, so the person to your right, has all the power. Basically, they're gonna two of two of the three packs. They're directly feeding you your cards. So, you know, if you don't get on there, I guess what they're part. You know, if they if you start just forcing brute and they're playing, they're drafting brute to your right, you're gonna end up with a worse deck than they are, uh, and you're gonna end up with one of the worst decks at the table if you're sitting to the left of uh, of an active player drafting the same class as you. So, 
this whole idea of staying open is like pretty important. Um, is this, I guess there's a bit of a, a bit of leeway for that, right? So let's say that you open up pack one, pick one. And like you say, there's like a really powerful class specific card. I don't know. Maybe it's, um, Singing Steel Blade. It's a good example. Yeah. Singing Steel Blade. Okay. Let's use that as an example. Uh, I would probably still take that card, but what I would do is I'm not married to that card. So I would take that card. I'm happy for my first, I'm happy to not play my first pick. Basically, if I end up not playing my first pick, that's fine. I would say about maybe less than half the time I actually end up playing my first pick and, unless it's a generic. So, um, okay. I take that card. My opponent starts to pass me. They pass me like a, my next pack has like a pretty reasonable warrior card. I don't know. Let's say it's got like a, a red sharpened steel, but it's also got like a really strong generic. Maybe it's got snatch. I'd probably just take the snatch past the sharpened steel this time around, leave myself a little bit open. And then I'm now, now seeing what comes in the next few packs. Okay. No warrior cards come through. It's dried up. Okay. I know that the singing steel blade I'm just going to have to pass on and, and start to move into a different class or actually warrior ends up being open. Um, and I start taking, you know, really strong warrior cards. Uh, and then I've cut that off from a person to my left. Yeah. They saw a red sharpened steel, but that's only one card. Now they're seeing nothing. So I'm, I'm sort of showing that I'm taking the warrior cards here and I'm setting myself in a, up in a really good position where I'm reading the signals from my right, taking the, the cards, the best cards that are being passed to me. But I'm also sending a signal to my left saying, yeah, there's no warrior here. It's, it's accounted for. You move into something else. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, we saw this actually displayed at the most recent calling um, quite a lot. I think that some of the the, the final pods were um, six players on the same class and then two players were on you know different classes or something of that nature, something close to that. There was like four or five four, on the same yeah. class and you saw you saw an extremely low power level um, in the vast majority of decks and the players that weren't in those classes had you know very, very strong decks. Um, and they were able to kind of pilot those to success, correct? Yeah, I think we had, um, I think it's six light drafters in the final table yeah, at the call in Auckland, two, two shadow, um, who both ended up being in the final, funnily enough, because they had very strong decks and positioned themselves in the right seats to do so. Um, talents add a little bit of murkiness to trying to execute on these, um, these sending and receiving signals because uh, some of the pack, pack skews can be a little just bit odd. Don't have, yeah, yeah, it's not as clear cut as when you don't have talents because you could actually end up with a, a pack that has no light cards in it, for instance. Like that is how the print runs work. So I don't want to get into it. We could do a whole, to be honest, we could do a whole series of podcasts on this and I think we might in the future. But the, the main thing I think to take away is like just think about your sort of. Um, I guess what does staying open to you mean? Like, are you okay to take one or two? powerful class cards early and be okay to walk away from those um or do you just want to even start with generics like i don't know pack one pick one i open up there's a red scar for a scar i'll just take that or you know whatever it might be there's a sink below um that's perfectly reasonable you just need to know what sort of staying open actually looks like and there is a school of thought which is like hard commit to a class so take the best card in the pack if it's a class card it's a class card and then you get past another class card like just hard commit to it um, and that's fine, but you know, not, it's not going to work out every time you can get cut from your right from time to time. And then all of a sudden you're sat there with five class cards and, uh, either you have to switch, switch class, can't play any of them, or you, uh, just commit to playing them and you end up with like one of the worst decks at the table. So it's really difficult. Speaking of concepts that are beyond the scope of this podcast, uh, Hayden, talk to me about reading signals and what that means. Yeah. I mean, we've kind of talked about this and I, I kind of got to hear myself a little bit woven into the staying open, but Reading signals is basically, um, you know, taking the the cues from the right. So what cards are you seeing past you in the first pack from your right? Um, one of the key things about reading signals is that it's really difficult to read into the first three or so cards of signals because your opponent is probably going to have the same concept. 
I'll, I'll stay open and read signals from my right, yeah? So reading into the first three or four cards is really difficult. Where you start to really get paid off for reading signals is like pack, pick four, five, six. You start to see these like gems of st stuff starts to come through that probably should have been picked up higher that weren't. That's when you can really start to take something. So we use the warrior example, you know, fifth pack come, uh, the fifth pack comes your way and there's like two or three warrior cards in there. Ooh, really feels like at least the person to my right and immediately to their right aren't taking warrior cards. This feels like a pretty good signal. Um, and and it's just really, it's a really important thing to sort of hone your craft on if you uh, want to get into draft is working out what's coming from uh, what direction. Absolutely. So one thing I want to talk about as well is my favorite concept in Flesh and Blood Draft that I think a lot of people don't actually know exists. I, I didn't know myself for quite a long time, but that is that in Flesh and Blood there are archetypes drafting. Some examples of this would be in Welcome to Wraith, there was a deck called Yellow Bellow. Essentially what you would draft is uh, Primeval Bellows and then a lot of yellow cards. So hence Yellow Bellow. Yellow and Six Attacks. Was, yeah, Yellow <laughs> Six Attacks. And you would essentially just swing with the hammer uh, or swing with the club, sorry, and come in for like 10 every turn. It was an incredibly powerful deck, especially in limited, and just hilariously effective if it was open. Um, most notably, I think James White played this against us when we did a draft at the studio, and I was just blown away because I didn't know that archetypes existed. Another um, example of this is in Monarch. There was a Blittle and Minoism that could go into your Bolton package, be very, very effective. Uh, and yeah, Hayden, talk to me a little bit about archetypes. I know you're a big fan as well. Yeah, because the, I guess the the base level and like the surface level is like there's four heroes in the set or there's three heroes in the set and those are the decks um but actually each hero can look significantly different and can look, and want different cards so um you know you used a couple of great examples there uh you could have two brute players at a table two rhino players and they draft different decks one could be on this like yellow bellow kind of plan another one could be on a much more um like focused on like barraging beatdowns or they want awakening bellows you know they're focused on like more attack actions as opposed to their weapon for instance um and, and monarch deck, a good example of this is like there was multiple chain decks so you could find these chain decks that were like really situated on um attack actions and like cards like rifted torment and cycling back through the deck and banishing these um or you could focus on these decks that were like uh, arcane damage focused so they're really highly prioritized any sort of arcane damage and the payoffs for those so that you know different archetypes in there um and we'll see this with tails i think it's probably the least explored aspect of flesh and blood is that in limited there's like a lot of different archetypes and a lot of different like powerful synergies and because in draft you get to sit you you get access to a lot more cards effectively because they will get passed around the table and you see them if you position yourself in the right archetype say something like you you know a yellow bellow deck for example is a perfect example um you know you're going to see a lot of primeval bellows open to the table if you get yourself into the right archetype you can be open to like getting all of those cards more than you would get from a six packs of seal pool you're going to see 24 packs worth of cards open. You just need to be in the right position to receive the cards that you need. So, um, yeah, there's, there's some really cool archetypes that um, I think have been just really underexplored because Limited has not been, not has much spotlight on it. But I think getting into Tales of Aria, one of the first things that I'm going to be looking at is like, okay, what are some of the, the archetypes that I sort of are looking to craft in this game? Um, and I'm sure those will start to come out as we see events. You know, we'll have people win events and go, oh yeah, I just drafted this all through day two. Uh, this was my archetype that I went into. No one else knew about it or something. Yeah, th that is, um, that's basically how you how you break the format, right? Is you, you yeah. find the archetype that people don't know exists or they think is not good um, oh. and you can just draft it over and over again. I have to, I have to, I have to share an example because it's not, it's not flesh and butter, but it's one of the most exciting things I've seen in TCGs ever done. 
and I, I just have to I have to share the story if people aren't familiar with the story. But there was, and I, I know we don't, we don't, you know, we don't want to talk about Magic the Gathering too much on the podcast, but there was a Magic the Gathering Pro Tour, which was like a, a Teams Pro Tour. It was a two-headed giant Pro Tour, so it was two people. And it was a draft, a two-headed giant draft Pro Tour. Um, so basically what that meant is you had teams of two people and they would play together in the same match against uh, another team of two. And so the draft table would have four teams around it, eight players. And um, there was this set, uh, it was uh, Time Spiral, I think it was called a Future Sight. And there was this archetype basically where there was like these things called slivers and they all interacted together and they had like poison, which was like, you know, like dot damage and things that were alternate win conditions. And these guys had worked out this, this archetype basically, which was like, no one else knew about it, which was to draft all these cards that people seemingly thought were terrible and weak. And so they would always be able to get them. They would always be able to get them at the table because they knew they would wheel around the table. People would never take them. And they ended up with these insanely powerful decks, basically based on the synergy of cards that people thought were terrible. And they did it They did it all through day one. They did it all through day two. They did it in the top eight again. And they just, I don't think they dropped a game. They might've dropped a couple of games maybe, but they just crushed everyone with these perceived weak cards because they'd worked out the synergistic strategy uh, of how to approach the draft format. I just love that story. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the most exciting thing about going into these limited callings and limited season yeah. is just the concept of that being, you know, possible in flesh and blood. But anyway, Hayden, we're just going to do a quick, a quick touch on cutting and hate drafting and what that is and why you would do it. So and let's just talk about it through an example. So the same drafting monarch. Um, we're coming into pack three. I know that the player on my left is very likely to be in chain, or the player in, in, you know to his left, so two away from me. Um, I just know that someone you know close down my line on the left is heavy into chain at this point. Um, pack three, I open. You know, there's a soul reaping that comes to me. Maybe pick two, pick three. Um, if I have a decent amount of cards, I'm not going to be playing cracked baubles, and the, the the strength of my deck is decently strong. Um, and there's not a lot of good other you know, options in the deck, I would likely consider picking the Soul Reaping just so my opponent can't have it because it is such an incredibly powerful card and limited. Um, Hayden, what are your what are your opinions on hate drafting in Flesh and Blood? Yeah, I'm um, I'm definitely use it sparingly, I would say, in Flesh and Blood because every card you take in, in this in the draft format is like is pretty important as we talked about before, right? You you have thirty cards that you need to play, you can have forty five and there's gonna be other cards you probably can't play. I would say where I engage in hate drafting more is where I'm probably sitting in a favorable position. So maybe I'm sitting as like one of, maybe I'm the only drafter of a class at a table um, or I'm one of two, but I know the person drafting it as well is probably on the opposite side of the table just based on how the cards are falling. This is where I might use a bit of hate drafting. So if I'm, say I've been put the only person into a class, uh, I'm pretty confident of that. And I know the person to my left is probably in say, um, say it's, they're probably in light because I just know that uh, these are the cards I've been passing. I've passed really good prism cards and I'm sitting here as the only chain drafter at the table, say, or the only levier drafter at the table. Um, I get my my pack, maybe four or five, and there's like a card in there for me that's okay, but it's probably not going to make my deck because I'm the only drafter at the table. I'm getting a lot of really high quality cards, but there's an impenetrable belief in the pack and I'm quite worried about this card uh, being played against me. And I know that there's a lot of light drafters to my left, I'm probably hate drafting that card, making sure that it doesn't fall into one of my, you know, my biggest sort of opponents to the left of me, um, considering the fact that I'm going to have to play against at least one of those players. So things like that, uh, that's where I'm mostly hate drafting. Or uh, to your example, where there's like a really, really powerful card. Uh, Soul Reaping, I think, is one of the, if not the most powerful card in, in Monarch Limited. Um, I'm pretty happy to, to hate draft that card. Uh, even, to be honest, I would even consider maybe taking it uh, pack one, pick one, or pick two. Um, just so it doesn't fall into the hands of someone that I'm probably going to have to play. Basically, if I want to win a draft, if I want a three-hour pod, I'm going to have to beat the best deck at the table, probably. 
uh, unless something weird happens um, in at least one of those games. So if I pass the Soul Reaping, I'm probably going to have to beat that card. So I'm you know also open to just taking it. Awesome. And any sort of closing comments before we you know, end it here? Um, Limited is a fantastic format. It is, it is the fundamentals of flesh and blood. It is all wrapped into this core package. The seal format is probably the best seal format I've played of any TCG. It's super thought out. The variance levels are so much lower than other TCGs because you don't have these massive bombs that just take over the game. Um, the draft format is phenomenal. I love the draft format. Uh, Welcome to and Monarch, especially Arcane Rising. I could probably leave, um, to be honest, but I'm excited to see what Tales of Aria brings us. And I just hope that we, we see a lot more spotlight on limited. I think it's been underappreciated, you know, for, for obvious reasons. Um, it's been difficult to run limited events versus constructed. But yeah, I think moving forward, we're going to see a lot more of what LSS have really set up with Flesh and Blood as a as a, a game that has limited in its DNA, basically. Yep, and I think that the world premiere of Tales of Aria is the most excited I've ever been for an event. Just going into that, so many people, brand new sets, so much unknown information. It's it's going to be really exciting. I I'm just I just can't believe it's happening. To be honest, it's uh, <laughs> it's going to be real excited. But anyway. Thanks so much for listening. Just wanted to do a couple, you know, a uh, quick few shout outs here. So we, you know, we are on YouTube, of course. So that is Arsenal Pass on YouTube, Arsenal Space Pass. On YouTube, we do upload deck techs, gameplay guides, and this, ver- uh, this version of the podcast, as well as our sub podcast, Time in the Round. Um, so if that's something you're interested, go ahead over to YouTube and maybe shoot us a, shoot us a subscription. It helps out a lot and we really appreciate it. Um, we recently started up our Patreon. It's been so awesome to see the success on there. We had our Patreon exclusive pod launch a couple weeks ago, um, and we've had two deck techs go up on there. So when we talk about deck tech, it's more than just, you know, kind of the, the cards in the deck. We talk, you know, we give a detailed sideboard guy. We talk about deck philosophy, um, theory, ratios, math, all that good stuff. So if that's something you're interested in, if you want to, you know, if you want like a quick quick way to pick up a deck and be competitive in the meta. I think that, um, you know, checking that out could be a great tool for you. So thanks so much to everybody who support us on Patreon and we will, you know, we're looking forward to providing more value there and also looking forward to this, uh, this exclusive kind of sideboarding guide here coming up on Saturday. So that's going to be awesome. We're also both uh, the Welcome to Wraith Boomers, Hayden Dale and Brendan Patrick, have found a way onto Twitter. So if you want to engage with us on Twitter, I am um, at the Fiddy Shades. So T H E F I D D Y S H A D E S. That is all one word. Um, it's like that one book that used to be really popular. So find me there. Um, shoot me a follow. I'd love to engage with you guys on Twitter. And Hayden is at the um, the underscore or no, sorry, it's at Fiendale. So at F Y E N underscore Dale. Um, and yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I totally forgot what your Twitter <laughs> handle was. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but anyway, um, hey, any closing thoughts? I did realize that I put uh, I put some notes here at the bottom, but I totally messed up the final closing notes. So I hope I hit everything. But if I did not, maybe you can help me out as we close here. No, I think we um, we we kind of hit the nail on the head. Uh, we talked about a lot of concepts here for limited. Um, I hope these are this is like a, a pretty comprehensive guide, I think, to making a move into limited. But we will we will definitely be going back over some of the key concepts and more in depth, especially as it relates to Tales of Aria. Um, I think you know one of the things maybe we didn't sort of hit on as much is that limited gives you a lot of opportunities to outplay your opponent, Brendan. Um, so yeah. you know, if you're into that, then uh, limited's probably probably for you, and it just teaches you the basics of the game really well. So yeah, yeah, limited is kind of the no nonsense format. Um, obviously, there's a bit of variance when it comes to like sealed and opening opening pools and things like that. 
but the core concept of, fle- of flesh and blood, the, sorry, the core concepts of flesh and blood are front and center. And if you're not prepared, um, you know, players who understand those will be able to kind of dominate those formats, in my opinion. So, you know, putting in the practice, putting in the work is really important and limited, and you can drastically reduce the variance. I think you have one of the, you know, the golden formats of any TCG that's ever been created. Sealed is amazing. Draft is amazing. And the limited is a for, is a forefront of the design of flesh and blood, so it's it's definitely just a joy. But with that, thanks so much for listening. Um, this has been episode twenty one of Arsenal Pass, and we'll see you all next week. See you later.